Section 36 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2 by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 17, Part 3 Through China. A few miles from Nuofugung, and a rocky precipice towers up on the west shore, something like a thousand feet high. The crackling of firecrackers innumerable and the report of larger and noisier explosions attract my attention as we gradually crawl up toward it, and coming nearer, flocks of pigeons are observed flying uneasily in and out of caves in the lower levels of the cliff. In the course of time our sampan arrives opposite, and reveals a curious two-storied cave temple, with many gaily dressed people, pleasure sampans, and bamboo rafts. This is the Quenyinan, a Chinese Buddhist temple dedicated to the goddess of mercy. It is the home of flocks of sacred pigeons, and the shrine to which many pilgrims yearly come. The pilgrims manage to keep their feathered friends in a chronic state of trepidation, by the agency of firecrackers and miniature bombs. Outside, under the shelter of the towering cliffs to the right, are more temples or dwellings of the priests. They present a curious mixture of blue porcelain, rock, and brick, which is intensely characteristic of China. During the day we pass, on the same side of the river, yet another remarkable specimen of man's handiwork, on the scene of one of nature's curious rock-work conceptions. Leading from base to summit of a sloping mountain are two perpendicular ridges of rock, looking very much like a couple of walls. Across the summit of the mountain, from wall to wall, some fanciful architect three hundred years ago built a massive battlement. In the middle he left a big round hole, which presents a very curious appearance, and materially heightens the delusion that the whole affair, from foot to summit, is the handiwork of man. This place is known as Tan Si Shan, or Bullet Mountain, and is the scene of a fight that occurred some time during the Ming Dynasty. A legend is current among the people that the robber Wong, a celebrated freebooter of that period, while firing on a pursuing party of soldiers, shot this moon-like hole through the mountain battlement with the huge musket he used to slaughter his enemies. Many huge rafts of pine logs are now encountered floating downstream to the cities of the lower country. Numbers of them are sometimes met, following close behind one another. Several huts are erected on each big raft, so that the sight not infrequently suggests a long straggling village floating with the tide. This suggestion is very much heightened by the score or more people engaged in poling, steering, alfresco cooking, etc., aboard each raft. And anon there come along men, poling with surprising swiftness, slender-built craft on which are perched several solemn and important-looking cormorants. These are the celebrated cormorant fishers of the Chinese rivers. Their craft is simply three or four stems of the giant bamboo, turned up at the forward end. On this the naked fisherman stands and propels himself by means of a slender pole. His stock in trade consists of from four to eight cormorants that balance themselves and smooth their wet wings as the lightsome raft speeds along at the rate of six miles an hour 
from one fishing-ground to another. Arriving at some likely spot, the eager aspirant for finny prizes rests on his oars, and allows his aquatic confederates to take to the water in search of their natural prey, the fishes. A ring around the cormorant's necks prevents them swallowing their captives, and previous training teaches them to balance themselves on the propelling pole that the watchful fisherman inserts beneath them the moment they rise to the surface with a fish. Captive and captor are then lifted aboard the raft, the cormorant robbed of his prey and hustled quickly off again to business. The sight of these nimble craft, skimming along with scarcely an effort, almost fills me with a resolve to obtain one of them myself, and abandon Tungba and his dreary lack of speed forever. The third day of our voyage against the prevailing typhoons and the rapid current of the Pijao comes to an end, and finds us again anchored within the dark shadow of a towering cliff. Anchored alongside us is a big junk freighted with bags of rice and bales of paper. The hands aboard this boat indulge in a lively quarrel during the evening chow-chow, and bang one another about in the liveliest manner. The peculiar indignation that finds expression in abusive language no doubt reaches its highest state of perfection in the celestial mind. No other human being is capable of soaring to the height of the Chinaman's falsetto modulations, as he heaps reproaches and cuss-words on his enemy's cue-adorned head. A big boat's crew of naked Chinamen, cursing and gesticulating excitedly, advancing and retreating, chasing one another about with billets of wood, knocking things over and raising cane generally, in the ghostly glimmer of fantastic paper lanterns, is a spectacle both weird and wild. Another weird, but this time noiseless, affair is a long string of nocturnal cormorant fishers, each with a big flaming torch attached to the prow of his raft, propelling themselves along close under the dark frowning cliff. The torches light up the black face of the precipice with a wild glare, and streak the shimmering water with moonlike reflections. The country through which our watery serpentine course winds all next day is hilly rather than mountainous. Grassy hills slope down to the water's blue ripples at certain places, but the absence of grazing animals is quite remarkable. Regions which in other countries would be covered with flocks of sheep and herds of cows and horses are without so much as a sign of herbivorous animals. Pigs are the prevailing meat-producing animals of southern China. All the way up country I have not yet seen a single sheep, and but very few cattle. I have also yet to see the first horse. Instead of herbivorous quadrupeds peacefully browsing are swarms of men, women, and children cutting, bundling, and stacking the grass for the manufacture of paper. Among the fleeting curiosities of the day are a crowd of sampans flying black flags, evidently some military expedition. They are bound downstream, and it occurs to me that they are perhaps a reinforcement of these famous freelances going to join the hordes of that denomination making things so uncomfortable for the French in Tonquin and Guangzhou. We also pass a district where the women enhance their physical charms by the aid of broad circular hats that resemble an inverted sieve. The edges, however, are not wood, but circular curtains of black calico. 
The roof of the hat is bleached bamboo chip. Officers board us in the evening to search the vessel for dutiable goods, but they find nothing. The privilege of levying customs on salt and opium is farmed out by the government to people in various cities along the rivers. The tax on these articles, from first to last, of a long river voyage is very heavy, customs being levied at various points. It is scarcely necessary to add that under these arbitrary arrangements the oily, conscienceless, and sin-loving celestial boatman has reduced the noble art of smuggling to a science. Young Bois smiles blandly at the officer as he searches carefully every nook and corner of the sampan, even rooting about with a stick in the moderate amount of bilge-water collected between the ribs, and when he is through dismisses him with an air of innocence and a wealth of politeness that is artfully calculated to secure less rigorous search next time. The poling and towing is prolonged till nearly midnight, when we cast anchor among a lot of houseboats and miscellaneous craft before a city. Even at this unseemly hour we are visited by an owlish peddler, whose boat is fitted up with boxes containing various dishes toothsome to the heathen palates of the watermen. Young Bois and Oswun look wistfully over the ancient pastry peddler's wares, and pick out tiny dishes of sweetened rice gruel. This they consume with the same unutterable satisfaction that hungry monkeys display when eating chestnuts, ending the performance by licking the platters. Although the price is nearly a farthing a dish, with wanton prodigality young Bois orders dishes for the whole company, including even his passenger. From various indications it is surmised, as I seek my couch, that the city opposite is Chao Chu Fu. Inquiry to that effect, as usual, elicits nothing but a bland grin from young Bois. When, however, he takes the unnecessary precaution of warning me not to venture outside the covered sleeping quarters during the night, intimating that I should probably get stabbed if I do, I'm pretty well satisfied of our arrival. This cautious proceeding is to be explained by the fact that I am young Bois's debtor for two days' diet of rice, turnips, and flabby pork, and he is suspicious that I might creep forth in the silence and darkness of the night and leave him in the lurch. Young Bois now summons his entire pantomimic ability to inform me that Chao Chu Fu is still some distance up the river. At all events, that is my interpretation of his words and gestures. On this supposition I enter no objections when he bids me accompany him to the market, and purchase a new supply of provisions for the remainder of the journey. Impatient to proceed to Chao Chu Fu, I now motion for them to make a start. Young Bo points to the frowning walls of the city we have just visited, and blandly says, Chao Chu Fu. Having accomplished his purpose of bamboozling me into replenishing his larder, by making me believe our destination is yet farther upstream, he now turns round and tells me that we have already arrived. The neat little advantage he has just been taking of my ignorance with such brilliant results to the larder of the boat has visibly stimulated his cupidity, and he now brazenly demands the payment of filthy lucre. Making a circular hole with his thumb and finger to intimate big rounds in contradistinction to mere sin. 
The assumption of dense ignorance has not been without its advantages at various times on my journey around the world. And regarding young Bois's gestures with a blankety-blank stare, I order him to proceed upstream to Chao-Chu-Fu. The result of my refusal to be further bamboozled by the wily young Bois, without knowing something of what I am doing, is that I am shortly threading the mazy alleyways of Chao-Chu-Fu with Ah Swan and young Bois for escort. What the object of this visit may be, I haven't the remotest idea, unless we are proceeding to the quarters of some official to have my passport seen to, or to try and enlighten my understanding in regard to young Bois's claims for battered Mexican dollars. Vague apprehensions arise that, peradventure, the six dollars paid at Guangzhou was only a small advance on the cost of my passage up, and that young Bois is now piloting me to an official to establish his just claims upon pretty much all the money I have with me. Ignorant of the proper rate of boat hire, disquieting visions of having to retreat to Canton for the lack of money to pay the expenses of the journey through to Chojiao, are flitting through my mind as I follow the pendulous motions of young Bois's pigtail along the streets. The office that I have been conjuring up in my mind is reached at last, and found to be a neat room provided with forms and a pulpit-like desk. A pleasant-faced little Chinaman in a blue silk gown is examining a sheet of written characters through the medium of a pair of tortoiseshell spectacles. On the wall I am agreeably astonished to see a chromo of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, with an inscription in Chinese characters. The little man chin-chins, salams, heartily, removes his spectacles, and addresses me in a musical tone of voice. Young Bois explains obsequiously that my understanding Chinese is conspicuously unequal to the occasion, a fact that at once becomes apparent to the man in blue silk whereupon he quickly substitutes written words for spoken ones and presents me the paper. Finding me equally foggy in regard to these, he excuses my ignorance with a courteous smile and bow, and summons a grey-cued underling to whom he gives certain directions. This person leads the way out and motions for me to follow. Young Bo and Aswan bring up behind, keeping in order such irrepressibles as endeavor to peer too obtrusively into my face. Soon we arrive at a quarter with big monstrous dragons painted on the walls, and other indications of an official residence. Palanquin-bearers in red jackets and hats, with tassels of red horsehair, flit past at a fox-trot with a covered palanquin, preceded by noisy gong-beaters and a gaily comparisoned pony. This is evidently the Yaman or Mandarin's quarter, and here we halt before a door, while our guide enters another one and disappears. The door before us is opened cautiously by a celestial, who looks out and bestows upon me a friendly smile. A curly black dog emerges from between his legs, and presents himself with much wagging of tail and other manifestations of canine delight. All this occurs to me as very strange, but not for a moment does it prepare me for the agreeable surprise that now presents itself in the appearance of a young Englishman at the door. It would be difficult to say which of us is the most surprised at the other's appearance. Mutual explanations follow, and then I learn that, all unsuspected by me, 
two missionaries of the English Presbyterian Mission are stationed at Chow Chu. At Canton I was told that I wouldn't see a European face nor hear an English word between that city and Chojiao. On their part they have read in English papers of my intended tour through China, but never expected to see me coming through Chow Chu Fu. I am, of course, overjoyed at the opportunity presented by their knowledge of the language to arrange for the continuation of my journey in a manner to know something about what I am doing. They are starting down the river for Canton tomorrow, so that I am very fortunate in having arrived today. As their guest for the day, I obtain an agreeable change of diet from the swashy preparations aboard the sampan and learn much valuable information about the nature of the country ahead from their servants. They have never been higher up the river than Chao Chufu themselves, and rather surprise me by giving the distances to Canton as two hundred and eighty miles. By their kind offices I am able to make arrangements for a couple of coolies to carry the bicycle over the Meiling Mountains as far as the city of Namnyan, on the headwaters of the Kanjiao whence if necessary i can descend into the yangtze shao by river the route leads through a mountainous country up to the meiling pass thence down to the headwaters of the kanjiao all is ready by eight o'clock on the morning of october twenty second the coolies have lashed the bicycle to parallel bamboo poles as also a tin of lunch biscuits a tin of salmon and of corned beef articles kindly presented by the missionaries Namnyan is said to be two hundred miles distant, but subsequent experience would lessen the distance by about fifty miles. Our way leads first through the cemeteries of Chao Chu Fu, and along little winding stoneways through the fields leading, in a general sense, along the right bank of the Pijiao. The villagers in the upper districts of Guangdong are peculiarly wanting in facial attractiveness. In some of the villages on the upper Pijiao, the entire population, from pulling infants to decrepit old stagers whose hoary cues are real pigtails in respect to size, are hideously ugly. They seem to be simple, primitive people, bent on satisfying their curiosity, but in the pursuit of this they are, if anything, somewhat more considerate or more conservative than the Persians. Mothers hurry home and fetch their babies to see the Fangwei pointing me out to their notice, very much like pointing out a chimpanzee in the zoological gardens. In these village inns the spirit of democracy embraces all living things. Sore-eyed coolies, leprous hangers-on to the thread of life, matronly sows and mangy dogs, come, go, and freely mingle and associate in these filthy little kitchens. When cooking is in progress, nothing is set off the fire onto the ground, but that a hungry pig stands and eyes it wistfully, but sundry burnings of their sensitive snouts during the days of their youthful inexperience have made them preternaturally cautious, so that they are not very meddlesome. The sleeping room is really a part of the pigsty, nothing but an open railing separating pigs and people. A cobblestone path now leads through a hilly country, divided up into little rice fields, peanut gardens, pine copses, and cemeteries. Peanut stalls one encounters at short intervals, where ancient dames or wrinkled old men preside over little saucers of half-roasted nuts, peanut sweet cakes, peanut plain cakes, peanut crullers, 
peanut dough, peanut candy, peanuts sprinkled with sugar, peanuts sprinkled with salt, and peanuts fresh from the ground. The people seem to be well-nigh living on peanuts, which unhappy diet probably has something to do with their marvelous ugliness. In a gathering of villagers standing about me are people with eyes that are pitched at the most peculiar angles, varying from long, narrow eyes that slope downward toward the cheekbone to others that seem almost perpendicular. No less astonishing is the contour of their mouths. Ragged holes in their ugly faces are these, for the most part, shapeless and uncouth as anything well could be. They are the most unprepossessing humans I have seen the whole world round. As on the evening of the third day from Chao Chu Fu we approach Nam Huang, the people in the country undergo a great change for the better. The land is more level and better cultivated. Villages are thicker and more populous, and the people are no longer conspicuously ill-favored. All evidence goes to prove that meager diet and hard lines generally continued from generation to generation, result in the production of an ill-conditioned and inferior race of people. A three-storied pagoda on a prominent hill to the right marks the approach to Nam Huang, and another of nine stories marks the entrance. Swarms of people follow us through the streets, rushing with eager curiosity to obtain a glimpse of my face. Sometimes the surging masses of people, struggling and pushing and dodging, separate me from the coolies, and the din of the shouting and laughing is so great that my shouts to them to stop are unheard. A shout or a wave of the hand results only in a quickening of the people's curiosity and an increase in the volume of their own noisiness. Thus hemmed in among a compact mass of apparently well-meaning but highly inflammable Chinese, hooting, calling, laughing, and gesticulating, I follow the lead of Ching Wei and Wang Yui through a mile of streets to the Hittim. Rich native wares are displayed in great abundance, silk, satins, and fur-lined clothing so costly and luxurious, and in such numbers, that one wonders where they find purchasers for them all. Side by side with these are idle factories, where Joss may be seen in every stage of existence, from the unhewn log of his first estate to the proud preeminence of his highly finished condition painted, gilded, and furbished. Coffin warehouses, in which burial cases are displayed in tempting array, are always conspicuous in a Chinese city. The coffins are made of curious slabs, jointed together in imitation of a solid log. Some of these are varnished in a style calculated to make the eyes of a prospective corpse beam with joyous anticipation. Others are plainly finished, destined for the abode of humbler and less pretentious remains. At the Hittim, with much angry expostulation and firmness of decision, the following mob are barred entrance to our room. They are not by any means satisfied, however. They quickly smash in a little closed panel so they can look in, and every crack between the boards betrays a row of peering eyes. Ching Wei is a hollowed-eyed victim of the drug, and yearns for peace and quiet so that he can pass away the evening amid the seductive pleasures of the opium-smoker's heaven. The rattle and racket of the determined sightseers outside, clamorously demanding to come in and see the Fang Wei, annoy him to the verge of desperation under the circumstances.
He patiently endeavors to forget it all, however, and to banish the whole troublesome world from his thoughts, by producing his opium pipe and lamp and attempting to smoke. But just as he is getting comfortably settled down to rolling the little knob of opium on the needle and has puckered his lips for a good pull, a decayed turnip comes sailing through the open panel and hits him on the back. The people looking in add insult to injury by indulging in an audible snicker as Ching Wei springs up and glares savagely into their faces. This indiscreet expression of their levity at once seals their doom, for Ching Wei grabs a pole and hits the boards such a resounding whack and advances upon them so savagely that only a few undaunted youngsters remain at their post. The panel is repaired and comparative peace and quiet restored for a short time. No sooner, however, has Ching Wei mounted to the first story of heavenly beatitude from the effects of the first pipe of opium, than loud howls of Fang Wei, Fang Wei are heard outside, and a shower of stones comes rattling against the boards. Ching Wei goes to the partition door and indulges in an angry and reproachful attack upon the unoffending head of the establishment. The unoffending head of the establishment goes immediately to the other door and indulges in an angry and reproachful attack upon the shouters and stone-throwers outside. The Chinese are peculiar in many things, and in nothing, perhaps, more than their respect for words of reproach. Whether the long-suffering innkeeper hurled at their heads one of the moral maxims of Confucius, or an original production of his own brain, is outside the pale of my comprehension. But whatever it is, there is no more disturbance outside. It must be about midnight when I am awakened from a deep sleep by the gabble of many people in the room. Transparent lanterns adorned with big red characters held close to my face, cause me to blink like a cat upon opening my wondering eyes. These lanterns are held by Yemeni runners, in semi-military garb, to light up my features for the inspection of an officer, wearing a rakish tartar hat with a brass button and a red horsehair tassel. The Yemeni runners wear the same general style of headdress, but with a loop instead of the brass button. The officer is possessed of a wonderfully soft musical voice, and holds forth at great length concerning me with Ching Wei. The officer takes my passport to the Yemen, and ere leaving the room pantomimically advises me to go to sleep again. In the morning Ching Wei returns the two-foot square document with the viceregal seal, and winks mysteriously to signify that everything is lovely and that the goose of permission to go ahead to Nam Nyan hangs auspiciously high. The morning opens up cool and cloudy. The pebble pathway is wider and better than yesterday, for it is now the thoroughfare along which thousands of coolies stagger daily with heavy loads of merchandise to the commencement of river navigation at Nam Huang. The district is populous and productive, bales of paper, bags of rice and peanuts, bales of tobacco, bamboo ware, and all sorts of things are conveyed by muscular coolies to Nam Huang to be sent down the river. Gradually have we been ascending since leaving Nam Huang, and now is presented the astonishing spectacle of a broad flight of stone steps, certainly not less than a mile in length, leading up, up, up to the summit of Mei Ling Pass. 
Up and down this wonderful stairway, hundreds of coolies are toiling with their burdens. Scores of travelers in holiday attire and several palanquins bearing persons of wealth or official station. The stairway winds and zigzags up the narrow defile, averaging in width about twenty feet. Refreshment houses are perched here and there along the side, sometimes forming a bridge over the steps. The stairway terminates at the summit in a broad stone archway of ancient build, over which are several rooms. This is evidently an office for the collection of revenue from the merchandise carried over the pass. Standing beneath this arch, one obtains a comprehensive view of the country below to the north. A pretty picture is presented of gabled villages and temples, green hills and pale gold-ripening rice-fields. The little silvery contributaries of the Kanjau ramify the picture like veins in the human palm, and the brown cobbled pathways are seen leading from village to village, disappearing from view at short intervals beneath a cluster of tiled houses. Steeper but somewhat shorter steps lead down from the pass, and the pathway follows along the bank of a tiny stream, leading through an almost continuous string of villages to the walls of Nam Nyan. End of section 36 Recording by Pamela Krantz